This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is January 14th, 2022, and we're talking with Ahmed Rahman about what has been an eventful and often confusing year in the U.S. labor market. Dr. Rahman is an associate professor of economics in Lehigh's College of Business. He also is a research fellow at the Institute of Labor Economics. His research areas include economic growth, economic history, immigration, and the economics of education. Thank you for being with us today, Ahmed. Thanks a lot, Jack. It's great to be here. Let's start over the past year or more, the US labor market has experienced something it rarely, if ever, has seen before, a combination of high job openings and low hiring. Uh, We'll get into some of the details uh, throughout the discussion today, but broadly speaking, what's going on here? Yeah, well, Jack, I mean, that's the the question for our age. Um, You know, economists have labeled this phenomenon uh, various things, uh, the great resignation, the great realignment, and of course, my favorite is the take this job and shove it economy. Um, <laughs> the ultimate question is, sure, what, why is this happening? So in the spirit of, you know, sometimes a cigar is really just a, just a cigar, and I, I hate to bring up the dreaded C word so early in our conversation, but it's COVID, of course. Uh, COVID has, has forced us to reevaluate um, almost everything, you know, uh, what we do, how we do it, where we do it, um, why we do it. Um, it's influencing all our relationships, family, our communities, and, uh, and maybe especially, you know, in the, in the workplaces. Um, and to be honest, you know, some of us wondered at the start of this pandemic in 2020, uh, if these jobs that seem to be evaporating away uh, would ever come back, you know, if they might get automated away or outsourced. Um, and in fact, the technology is just, they haven't caught up. They're not there yet, right? These jobs in, in retail and education, hospitality, manufacturing, uh, they rely on people. They, they still are, are, are people dependent. And so what we're seeing now is, in fact, the opposite is happening, that the jobs have certainly come back. It's just that the people have not. And you need both. Um, and I think what's interesting is, I, you know, it reflects something that perhaps sociologists and psychologists could have informed the economists uh, a while um, ago about. And that's that this cataclysm has, um, you know, it's forced a reevaluation, uh, right, at the individual level. and through the labor market, though the labor market really did appear very strong in 2019, I think it turns out that many of us were miserable <laughs> doing those, those jobs. Uh, and now people are voting with their feet uh, in a major way, right? So, so as an example, you know, some people were forced out of work um, and they discovered that they didn't really necessarily need to work um, or they weren't that really happy to begin with. And that job's absence has sort of created that awareness. Um, uh, others have discovered that what they were doing in the office could actually be done at home, right? Whether that home is down the street from the company or, or on the other side of the planet. Uh, so they discover that you know, they can earn money, but they can also take care of their kids or tend to the yard or day trade or whatever it is that they wanna do. And so what we're seeing is, you know, all of us have been exposed to these other possibilities. Uh, and when, when you're confronted with a lot of choices, sometimes you sort of freeze up, you're sort of frozen in indecision. And as you weigh the pros and cons of various things, I believe a real big chunk of what we're seeing right now, and uh, I think we'll talk about this a little bit more later, um, is, is really about that. 
And you mentioned the fact that the jobs to a large extent did come back, but the people filling the jobs did not. And let's start out talking about that because, you know, when, when COVID hit in, in March of 22, um, I believe the, the initial job loss um, was 10 million jobs in the U S and, in the past year and a half, 6 million of those jobs have already been recovered. And at the time that COVID hit the, I think the majority of economists were predicting it would be a very slow recovery coming out of this and it would take years for the economy to rebound. So looking at, you know, kind of the more optimistic piece of this equation, what accounts for the more robust recovery, at least in in the jobs that have come back so far that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think in retrospect, I suppose this sort of, we call it a V-shaped recovery, right? It's a big bounce back. Uh, maybe it's not that surprising. Um, so if we contrast this one from the recession, the last recession, 2008, its predecessor, um, that was the deepest recession we've faced since World War II, right? It was also the longest, about 18 months. Um, you know, but that kind of recession was sparked by a financial crisis, uh, multiple crises, in fact, you know, it was deep and it affected all kinds of markets, uh, housing market, uh, bonds, the commercial paper market froze up, and of course, uh, labor markets. Um, so that kind of deep recession, widespread, and that's the kind of recession that takes a pretty long time to recover from, and in fact, um, it, it was. Now, in contrast, this recession, you know, there's a lot of unique aspects to this recession. The first of these is that, in many respects, it was self-inflicted. You know, like, we ourselves proscribed various activities that are normally conducive to economic activity, and we simply weren't doing them anymore, right? We were not eating out at restaurants. We weren't getting haircuts or manicures. We weren't hiring au pairs to take care of our kids. We weren't going to catch a show or or movies. Um, Now, there were very good epidemiological reasons for not doing those things. Um, But what we we did was put our lives on hold, right? It's understood, however, that, you know, once things should resume, once the pandemic um, ends, and, uh, you know, we're not out of the woods by, by any means, uh, but of course, that epidemiological picture uh, is very different from what it was what it was a year ago. So I think you know the recovery is unusual, uh, but it's because this, the recession itself was so was so unusual. Um, there are, don't get me wrong; there are still many areas to improve. You know, ten million versus six million is definitely <laughs> there's a definite gap. Finally, <laughs> um, people are still looking for work. And we do have uh, equity considerations, uh, problems, you know, black unemployment rates are double that of white unemployment rates. Um, but, you know, the overall picture is definitely, uh, it's, a, it's a good recovery. And in fact, coming back to our earlier point, uh, perhaps it's too good, right? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, companies seem like really eager to kind of go back to business as usual, um, but the workers, not so much. So we have this kind of disconnect in some sense, the, the, right? The jobs have come roaring back, um, but it's sort of like, the, maybe it's the older jobs, right? It's the jobs, it's the way things used to happen again in 2019. And as, I, as we mentioned before, people weren't necessarily thrilled with that environment. And so that's another, again, a uh, unique aspect to this recovery. It's a sort of a, there's a paradox here. It's sort of very robust, but it's also um, so different. And the people aren't seeming to be as engaged in that robust recovery as we might have thought. To counteract that, what are some of the key strategies that employers have been using to try to compete for the, the best candidates to the jobs that, that they have to fill? 
Yeah, this is this is another key. This, you know, this is going to be a big issue in 2022. It is actually a burgeoning area in labor economics called personnel economics. Uh, you know, this idea, and part of that is the ideas of attracting and retaining personnel. I mean, I myself study uh, retention issues in the military, um, and there, there's you know, just a lot of random things that happen uh, that allow us to measure you know, the importance of various factors in retention. I mean, examples include you know, opportunities for promotion and advancement, um, accumulation of uh, firm-specific knowledge and human capital, you know, various perks on the job, all these things appear to matter to varying degrees. And what's true for the military is for the most part true for the overall economy and the civilian workforce. So in our current climate, you know, there are these two big ones, right? Um, wages are obviously one of them. Um, so we're seeing these wage increases to attract workers. This is especially true for lower skilled service jobs. Um, the other is what we might call like work amenities. Right, and one of the new amenities that's of, of key interest now is this ability to work remotely, uh, the ability to shape your own hours, and so on. Right, this degree of flexibility, um, and I think what's interesting, what's relatively new here, uh, and that's what labor economists I think are, are looking very deeply into, is that there are important interactions uh, when it comes to these two factors. So, what we're seeing, I think, is upward wage these upward wage pressures. Um, they're less pronounced in those areas where workers are, in fact. Uh, granted more flexibility, right? They call compensating differentials. So an, ex an example would be Google, right? Where Google actually uh, said, you, know, you can work remotely, but, but we're going to discount your earnings. Right? You're going to make a, a you take 10% off your, your wages if you have that flexibility. So I think we're seeing this sort of what we might call a wage compression that's happening. Wages are continuing, are likely to continue to rise, but they're going to be rising for the lowest wage earners. All right? As an example, like workers in gas stations, uh, non-managerial workers, these are like, you know, this is the lowest paid sector. They saw their earnings rise something like 16% since the pandemic began. And that's, that's a lot higher than the, than the average. That's just a glimpse of the potential wage compression that we're seeing here. Um, and so more generally, the bottom 25% of earners, uh, I think I've seen the highest wage growth, roughly like 5% over the last year, where other, uh, other income earners, uh, the increase has been far. Far less, and I think you know a big reason that is happening is due to these workers. You know, employers cannot entice these workers back with something that they are increasingly demanding. It's this flexibility, this opportunities to work remotely. The nature of the, these jobs simply do not allow for that. And so, we need these workers. They are deemed essential, and I think we've learned kind of new, anew just how just how essential they, they are. And so, you know, they're, they're going into the market, and they will need to be paid accordingly. Now, if there are far more jobs than available workers and employers are paying higher wages than before the pandemic, one of the conundrums that we've been dealing with is a flat labor force participation rate over the past year and a half. So what, what accounts for that and how much of a factor does the lingering coronavirus pandemic with Omicron as the latest play in keeping workers on the sidelines? The labor force participation rate, um, I think now kind of hovers at 61.9%. Uh, you know, this is a full percent right. point and a half um, sort of below the pre-pandemic. And it's sort of the lowest it's been since its 1970s. So for those of us who are interested in sort of longer run growth prospects for America, this is in fact quite alarming for some reasons. We might think that it's going to be flat for the foreseeable future, and there are other reasons why we might think it, it'll, it'll, it'll rise. So, one of the big reasons why it might remain flat 
is, you know, we, we've seen 3.6 million more Americans leaving, who left the workforce and saying that they did not want to come back compared to a year ago, to November 2019. And older Americans, um, those uh, 55 and older, uh, accounted for like 90% of that increase. So I think that's the part where these individuals really are not coming back uh, because the those that are leaving are excused older. And that, that's kind of one aspect where we might think that this uh, labor force participation is going to be pretty flat for, for quite a while. Uh, but there are other considerations, right? And again, I'm going to come back to the working from home aspect as, as one of those considerations. So if you think about it, you know, like five to 10% of jobs out there, I think can be done remotely. You can do them anywhere. And then five or 10% of jobs, you can never do them remotely. You always have to show up. Mm -hmm. The vast majority, 80, 90%. And, uh, and Jack, you and I, I think are part of that big group in the middle where it's a mix. Right? And, and, and that's part of this great realignment, I think, is that there's, there's lots of bargaining going on between firms and workers uh, just trying to figure it out. Workers are, are you know, they're, they're asking for greater flexibility. Firms are trying to understand how they can provide that flexibility. So as that plays out, I think um, there's reason to hope that labor force participation will, in fact, come upward as these, this new realignment sort of happens, as these firm labor relationships sort of get, sort of get worked out. Um, so that's a little bit more, more hopeful. Another reason might be, you know, people have focused on the stimulus checks, right, as, as part of it exacerbating um, the lack of enthusiasm to come back into the workforce. There's been recent studies suggesting that that, that does play a role, but I, I think that the role is quite modest, you know, um, that that's not really the main culprit. And of course, erstwhile workers are, you know, they're eating into their savings and their 401k plans. That can't last indefinitely. Uh, so as they try to figure this stuff out, I, I think they're gonna come back uh, as well. And then finally, I, I wouldn't underestimate also the extent of just burnout. People are tired uh, and it's hitting different industries in different ways. You know, the whole pandemic's affected, especially these employees that were in these low wage sectors, restaurants and hospitality. This is a group that's, they're no longer willing to tolerate, you know, the kinds of wages and the conditions that they experienced prior. And, and so that's part of the low, they're not participating coming back, at least not under the current conditions. Um, and of course, the struggle to hire those individuals, food and hospitality in particular, that has dominated the headlines. But you know, in the background, there's like a, a sort of a quieter uh, struggle, right? To staff sort of like nursing homes, daycares, schools. Um, and those, that's really important because that sort of has eaten away a little bit at the foundations, you know, for like America's social environments, the social infrastructure. So there's really bigger stakes than simply labor markets. I think this great resignation is impacting society in a way that I think is, is um, a little bit troubling. You know, and then finally, you know, what about the virus? The virus still is a factor um, for us. And I think it continues to play a role, especially for older workers, you know, not having a vaccine mandate as we recently discovered that probably won't help matters. Um, but I think firms can figure this out. If OSHA can't do it, firms will have to do some of the heavy lifting in terms of making, ensuring a safe workplace, right? Ensuring options for that remote work, especially for, for more vulnerable people. Now, earlier you had mentioned the, uh, the take this job and shove it <laughs> economy. And right. yeah, starting in uh, September um, of 2021 was the first time I remember, you know, the, the massive numbers, more than 4 million 
people quitting their jobs. We, we've been seeing pretty consistently record numbers of workers quitting their jobs each month. Um, and it, is it as simple as with employers competing for a relatively flat pool of workers, there are more opportunities at this point to switch to a, a higher paying job, which I've seen referenced in a lot of the, the news coverage, or are there other factors at play here? And from some of what you've said, it sounds like there definitely are some, some other factors at play here. Right, there are. Um, I think there, but you're right. There are these opportunities for job switching. Um, I think we're really informed. There's a classic study done in the early 90s, where 5,000 young men through their social security records that, do, that you know, they documented that the primary way to get a wage increase is through these lateral job switches uh, rather than get a wage increase within your organization. So that is, I think, playing out in a pretty major way right now. Now that said, that process can take time, right? It really does take time to figure out what position best suits you, your skills and your interests. And especially now as so many are undergoing the sort of reevaluation, right? Of their careers and of their entire lives. So I think that's one aspect is matching is always uh, something that takes some time and it's taking, I think maybe even more time now, of course, the other aspect is that many of these quits, as I mentioned earlier, there are these early retirements. And so um, that's, there's an exit that's absolutely happening. Uh, and so we shouldn't expect those individuals to actually become, come roaring back. Um, and then there's you know, another aspect about finding a higher paying job, of course, is, is education. Education tends to be a little bit more of a classic, but although longer term process in terms of going up the, the wage income ladder, right? That's how you can transfer right. to a higher job. And I think this will eventually show up. Um, of course, I think it's also important to note that right now college enrollment um, is like way down. It's like six and a half percent lower, I think from its pre-pandemic levels. I think there's some obvious reasons for this. You know, the altered and disrupted college environment is part of it. You know, this is negatively affecting both students and faculty alike. Um, and so it doesn't look that attractive. Uh, it's also, partly these high paying jobs, right? For when you graduate from high school and those kind of jobs are actually plentiful. So those are some of the reasons why we're seeing the low levels. And I think, you know, this might sound a tad tendentious, but without a dramatic re-engagement in these individuals' education, I think the potential loss to their longer run earnings and mm -hmm. the future is kind of significant uh, and will greatly impact all of us in the years to come. But I also believe that this re-engagement will in fact occur it's just going to take a little bit of time. The reason I say that is because, you know, once we're post-pandemic or fully endemic or however you want to describe it, you know, college is going to be the gateway for the jobs of the future. I know it sounds corny, but the jobs of the future involve those that where the, that flexibility um, is. And so people are, have noticed that they're seeing it, they're asking for it, but you do need postgraduate, you know, you need secondary education or tertiary education in order to um, get those positions. So if people reflect on it and uh, appreciate that, I think colleges are going to come roaring back in a major way. I, I hope that doesn't sound just like wishful thinking. One of the things we haven't talked about yet is um, what's been happening with women in the workforce. Uh, right. Women, by and large, have not shared in the new job opportunities at the same level as men. So what are, what are some of the main factors that have kept women from returning to the workforce? Yeah, I think this is one of the more, at least for some of us, some of, one of the more disappointing trends 
that we're seeing where women have made, in fact, great strides uh, in the labor markets for over the last few decades, although that, that, um, that progress has slowed and now it seems to be unfortunately reversing, right? Um, a number of things I think to consider. One is uh, women are more, you know, we talk about burnout factor and I think women are just more burnt out than men, right? That's a combination of kind of industries and jobs that they tend to uh, hold. They are those face-to-face -face jobs um, and they are the ones that were very stressed and continue to be stressed due to COVID. And it's also the case that they have more responsibilities I and mean, we still live in, in a world where um, if there's going to be uh, a traditional household and one of those individuals are going to be working, it tends to go towards the, the male. And so it seems like that is playing out to some degree. So I've seen a recent McKinsey report where uh, you know, one in three women say they have considered downshifting their career or leaving the workforce this year. And that, that's compared to one in four who said that you know, just like a few months into the pandemic. So it's getting, it's getting worse in this context. Uh, and I think the burnout factors is definitely a, a problem there. Other considerations, you know, so we call it sometimes the, the, a broken rung problem, right? So how women have a little bit more harder time going up the, the distribution, like, so get to manager. And I think, you know, how the pandemic and, and our new economy plays out in terms of the, this broken rung problem but it does not looking all that great uh, so far. Uh, and so again, it's not just that the current job doesn't look all that attractive for, for women, it's that the job prospects for the future are also potentially deteriorating. And so all considered, you know, the, these, these uh, positions for women, I, I think maybe it's just the calculation that many are making, like, you know, simply not, it's not worth it. And again, yeah, it's the, maybe they're not saying it Take this job and shove it. There's nicer than that, but but they're, they're more or less saying that uh, in, in large numbers. And I think for some of us who study this, the loss of, of women in the workplace constitutes uh, a real loss for the economy, because I think many studies have demonstrated the um, the things that that women in the workforce bring. Right, that uh, they spend substantial issue a time on issues, that, let's say related to diversity and equity, that that men don't that they, they work better under certain circumstances when it comes to risk assessment and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, that kind of thing is a little bit troubling and something to, that policymakers should take note of. You've talked some about uh, the exodus of older workers from the labor market. You know, in addition to the pandemic and, and that, you know, by older workers, I, the, the figures I've seen are 50, five and older, um, I believe, right, which yep. 55 isn't really that old at this I'm point. I'm increasingly yeah. agreeing with you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and when you look at longevity, I mean, you know, again, this, this was, uh, you know, your colleague, Andrew Ward is, has uh, done research extensively on this as well on, right, yeah. you know, the, the effects of longevity on the workforce was something that um, was going to have to be addressed because if people are living into their their 80s, they're not retiring at you know mid 80s to 90s up right. to 100. They're not going to be retiring at 55. They're going to be working longer. And what does that do to the the workplace? We've gone from kind of that discussion to you know that 90 percent of the people who left um, you know early were older adults who just said I've had enough. So is this? specifically related to the pandemic or again is there you know are there other things going on here as well 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I, you know, I, as many of these things, a little bit of, uh, of both. The surge in retirements, I think, does have a lot to do with the, with the pandemic. Um, in part, the natural thing is older cohorts feel more, more vulnerable, right? And so we have, um, what, 75 million baby boomers, uh, and they are tending to retire earlier uh, rather than uh, what Andrew and others uh, might suggest in, in previous research rather than later. Um, and this is having sort of like heterogeneous effects on on various industries, right? So like, you know, this is, again, just like, as I was saying, there's loss for the economy when it comes to women not participating. There's loss of the economy when it comes to uh, older workers not uh, coming back. Um, a lot of that has to do with very important firm specific human capital. You know, uh, this puts tremendous strains on certain industries. I talking to some people in the manufacturing industries and the older workers are leaving and the younger workers um, are not joining. And so uh, manufacturing in particular is finding a lot of strain. Uh, and it's not just the loss of the people, it's the loss of the skills. It's the loss of the expertise. And no one's there then to train the new generation, the new cohorts, right? To, to figure out what, how, to, how to do this stuff. Retail and service sector though, not as, not, not as uh, hard hit. You know, uh, part of that is older workers don't work as much in those sectors. But, and so they're not being, as negatively impacted. I think though, as you say, another factor that is sort of only tangentially related to COVID is there's older workers I think are seeing like the jockeying of their younger colleagues, leveraging this sort of work from home technologies, right? And using them to gain more flexible environments. And I think a lot of them are saying the hell with this, right? I'm, I'm just a little bit in the education sphere, you know, where teachers are just tired of the hybrid or the remote teaching. And having to navigate all these new technologies, and a lot of them are simply saying, you know, now's a good time to just pack it in. And I think, that, you know, history does bear this out some to some degree. Anytime there are these big paradigm shifts, and right? like as I said, I, I study a little bit of, of military stuff. Uh, the transition from sailing to steamships in the Navy in the 19th century, you know, whereas the older officers they sort of pine for the good old days of wooden ships and iron men. What we see is a big exodus of those officers, you know, leaving. The, the shift was simply something that they they didn't appreciate. And so older folks that are, you know, they might be trained in these more antediluvian ways, they're going to tend to exit. And so I do think that's, that is part of it. The other part, uh, the final part I, I might mention here is that simply, you know, the connection between the worker and the firm itself has changed through the decades. We, we transitioned a little bit more towards the gig economy, these temporary contract, you know, work relationships. So the relationship with the worker with, uh, and the employer itself has, has changed. And uh, so I don't think the, you know, if you think of the baby boomers, their ties with their employers, it's a little bit more tenuous now. And so they don't necessarily feel the, the need or the connection or the identity that's related to the job like, like it was decades ago, where you would work for 30, 40 years, get a gold watch as a retirement at the end. Um, that's really not the world anymore. So because they have this tenuous relationship, you can also see that captured here where, um, you know, workers, and again, yeah, we're talking about people in their late 50s. I mean, they've got plenty of um, work left in them and they are, they're throwing it in, right, in way earlier than many of us would have predicted. Now, one thing we haven't talked about that's been in the news an awful lot lately is inflation. Uh, what, if any, role is that playing in all the disruptions we've seen in the, the labor market? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think the main thing about inflation when you, from a labor perspective is that it obviously it eats away at your earnings, right? It's just what you make 
doesn't buy uh, as, as much as before. So, you know, as I mentioned, the lowest wage earners, um, they got a 5% wage increase last year. But of course, you got to acknowledge inflation, at least captured by the CPI, was like 7%, right? right. Most individuals are seeing in real terms, their earnings actually go down. So in the spirit of you can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all the people all of the time, we're appreciating this. And what I think some macroeconomists are fearing is um, this is going to create this sort of wage price spiral, kind of a classic inflation story that sometimes is very difficult to un. Um, to, to change. So much of the inflation sparked from the supply crunch. This is another thing that we've heard a lot in the media, you know, computer chip shortages, there's backups in the ports. A lot of this is really not related to labor markets, right? But uh, I think things really should get better over time. Um, at least that's the hope. But I think there's a real danger now that once the price increase, like the genies have been let out of the bottle, once we're unleashed, it's really hard to plug it back in. Because what happens is Workers see the price increases. They feel that they're in a good position, position to ask for wage increases. Firms um, do, and they're forced to pass off these costs as increases to customers in the form of prices. And then the workers see this and so on and so forth. So what started as a supply side shock, you know, could end up becoming a kind of a cost push inflationary spiral. Sounds like the Federal Reserve is on, on it. <laughs> Obviously that's the mandate. Um, and so, uh, the hope is that that wage price spiral won't actually spiral out of control. To wrap things up then, uh, yeah, the beginning of the new year is usually a time for optimism. So what do you see are the prospects for getting at least close to the full employment levels we saw pre-pandemic by the end of 2022? Yeah, so um, despite the kind of gloomy discussion that we just had, Jack, I think... Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, 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 it's good to end on. I think I do see some good things on the horizon. We just have to keep in mind, you know, it's not a bad thing to take time to figure out what you want to do with your life, right? I mean, so a labor economist will naturally lament that people are retiring early or that the, the labor force participation rate is so low. But it's not to say that a, this sort of new resource allocation that's happening right now is, is not going to lead to a better one, right? Uh, people are finding themselves. I think... Uh, we should encourage that, right? From various policies. I think unemployment will in fact continue to fall, could get to three and a half percent relatively relatively soon. And I think there's various policies that we can implement uh, to allow that transition to happen. I mean, there, you know, just to, um, things like immigration policy, I think is, is an important part here um, that we might want to revisit. Uh, policies about um, uh, internal migration, people wanting to work in a high wage place, but live in a low cost place. That's also happening. Um, so I think there are lots of positive things that potentially are occurring. And I might just end by actually, you know, let's recall what John Maynard Keynes, um, had predicted for us back in the 1930s that we would work, you know, like eight to 10 hours a week, uh, <laughs> because we'd be so productive. Right. So, um, I think he was right about the productivity, stunningly wrong <laughs> about the hours <laughs> working. Um, right, but I think part of the shock is that we might be moving a little bit closer to that to that uh, vision. It just it obviously takes some time. So what I would say is, you know, despite the urgency that's sort of generated by, you know, always worrying about next quarter's earnings or or the next election, what this labor market requires is for us to try some um, some patience, right? So just a little patience, as the great philosopher from Guns and Roses urged. Nice. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, Ahmed, for being with us today. 
Thanks, Jack. It was a pleasure. Ahmed Robin, some of his current work focuses on the effects of peers and teachers on college student performance, the impacts of different experiences in military service on private sector employment, and the wage and employment effects of immigration on native workers. Prior to joining Lehigh University's faculty, Dr. Rahman was an associate professor at the United States Naval Academy. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. This is Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.